That tune is almost too upbeat for Psalm 13. Not quite, but almost. It ends well, of course, but it starts in a very difficult place. I'm delighted to be with you again and to open God's Word to you as we continue our study of the Psalms, this great collection of inspired ancient hymns to help the people of God along in the many trials and difficulties of life. King David continues on his up and down ride through life in a fallen world, particularly as the leader of God's people and the king, the spiritual representative, all of these various offices that he in many respects occupies, he finds himself struggling. And this psalm, much like Psalm 6, is believed by many to consist of his agony in the midst of physical difficulties, that perhaps some ailment has overtaken him as a cumulative effect of the stress that he is under for the opposition that he has undergone, again, be it political, spiritual, military, what have you. And I think that makes a great deal of sense given the cries of his heart. And if that is indeed the case, there is a sense in which King David parallels Paul at a time of struggle in his life, which we read in 2 Corinthians 12. You remember there along about verse 7, the apostle says that for reasons to keep him from conceitedness over the message that he brings, that God had assigned to him a thorn in the flesh to torment him. He identifies whatever that is, as a messenger of Satan to molest his soul, torment in the Greek. That's not light language. That's very heavy language. And he prays three times that God would remove this from him, but God was not pleased to do so. And there comes that great declaration of Paul as he quotes the words that Jesus spoke to him, "'My grace is sufficient for you.'" for my power is made perfect in weakness. We don't like to struggle, and yet we know that it is in the midst of those times where we are miserable that we find ourselves most sanctified. It doesn't come in what we might refer to as peacetime for the soul, but it's, it's down in the valleys of despair and angst and distress that we find really who we are and who our God is in His great capacity to again by His mercy deliver us and be gracious unto us. And very simply, I suggest to you with Psalm 13, David takes himself and Israel and thus us, lo these many years later, from apprehension to assurance, from doubts about the presence and the favor of God to see again that not only has God not left His people, but He is with them in a complete and intimate way that they have hardly realized thus far. So let's now give attention to this song for the director of music, a psalm of David that we know to be Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you 
Hide your face from me. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foe will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for He has been good to me. This is God's Word. May He write its truth irremovably upon our hearts this day. Let's again seek His face in prayer. Father, we thank You for the privilege of being able to come into Your house to remove ourselves from this profane world in which we have labored the last six days, in which we have come to know much distress ourselves. We've received bad news. We've had anxieties about the future. Perhaps maybe we've even wondered where you are. We rejoice in that glorious objective reality that you have gone nowhere. You are right where you have always been. And we ask that you would give us the grace as we look at Psalm 13 to search our own hearts and to land where King David lands by your grace, secure in the knowledge that you are with us and that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, give assistance now to the one who preaches. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable In thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer, prepare us to sup with you at your table. Thank you that you are a gracious host. We stand in such desperate need of that grace. Would you supply it again today as only you can? For Jesus' sake, amen. You literary enthusiasts will no doubt be familiar with or perhaps a big fan of Harper Lee's 1960 Pulitzer-winning prize-winning novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. It was made into a film two years later, in 1962, in which the late great Gregory Peck portrayed the protagonist lawyer Atticus Finch. In the late 1980s, Mr. Peck was speaking to a group of people in Boston, and he was taking questions about his career, And he told the story of the time early on in production of that great film. Harper Lee visited the set one day. And he was in the midst of of shooting this intense dialogue with another character. And he could see Harper Lee out of the corner of his eye. And at one point, he could see a a reflection. Her her, her eyes was was glimmering a bit. And he realized, even in mid-scene, as he was acting his heart out, that she had become emotional. Those were tears that were reflecting off of the key lights on the soundstage. And he begins to think, well, I must really be doing a good job if I'm moving the author to tears. And he confessed that he began to think about the break. He couldn't wait to get over there to receive the compliment firsthand. And so they're on break, and he goes over and he greets Harper Lee. Hello, Harper. And she still teary-eyed, looks at him and says, Oh, Gregory, you have the cutest little pot belly just like my daddy had. 
he heard something that he wasn't expecting to hear, and it humbled him. Isn't that the way it is often when we approach Scripture? This is arguably the most transparent cry of David's heart thus far in the Psalter, with perhaps the exception of the middle verses of Psalm 6, the early verses in Psalm 10. He's in a desperate state here, and sometimes we approach Scripture and we don't expect it to say to us what it does. It almost catches us off guard and it humbles us. Do you remember when you were first saved? And maybe you'd read some Scripture Maybe you'd spent a little time dabbling in the Word, but you realized as a new being that this was God's Word to you, and and you just couldn't wait to devour it. You got up early. You stayed up late. you, You just drank it in. You couldn't get enough of it. And sometimes there was disappointment. You'd heard about these great characters in redemptive history, but you began to read about their lives, and they weren't so great. I mean, Moses murdered a man. David committed adultery and had a man murdered. Paul was a murderer. The three most prolific writers of Scripture were murderers. You look at all of the idolatry that happened on Solomon's watch, and you look at the wicked kings, and you go, wait a minute, these these people aren't so great after all. And then you begin to realize as you come to know your own heart that you're no better than they were. It's not what you expect to hear. Thirteen falls into that category, with many others, of course. I think of Psalm 22 or Psalm 88. We don't expect to hear these kinds of confessions from our spiritual heroes. We like to think of them as strong and reassuring and having their act together, but they don't. This catches us off guard and it surprises us and it humbles us, but we need that. Praise God that He gives to our souls what is necessary, not what is desired, for certainly then we would have no hope. And Psalm 13 specifically offers us help with what I'm calling biblical trust issues. And it takes us from the unsettling place of thinking that God has abandoned us back to seeing that God not only has not abandoned us, but is still pursuant unto us and our well-being as those whom He initially sought in His grace and made His own. The good news here is that He not only hasn't left you, but His presence with you is even more complete, even more immense than you realized. David takes us from feelings of abandonment to knowledge of divine pursuit from the sense that God is gone to the glorious reality that He hasn't left us, but He is ever nearby and working in us what is best for us. Going from bad feelings to good knowledge and a revisitation of those glorious truths of God and all His marvelous covenant love for sinners and what that means for us. Well, there are four observations that I would like for us to make from these six verses under the rubric of biblical trust issues. The first thing I want us to see is the conviction that biblical trust brings. The conviction that biblical trust brings, looking primarily at verses 1 and 2. He's 
sounding a note of exhaustion here. As I said, his sense of desperation seems unprecedented, at least thus far in the Psalms as we have them in our canon. He's tired. Someone once said, and I think it's true, that trials in life are not, the the difficulty of them isn't based so much on their intensity as on their longevity. You know, we have things that hit us, like Diego's passing, and they shock us and they break our hearts. But it seems that the things that really gnaw at us and cause us to doubt and wrestle and begin to cry out to God in ways we haven't before are, are those lingering, just dragging on and on and on, refusing to change situations in life. The marriage that just won't get any better. That hard boss that just keeps getting harder and harder. That physical infirmity that you've prayed countless times to be relieved of that just still nags at you. And you find yourself just saying, how long? Now, recognize where he is. And I noted this three weeks ago as we opened Psalm 12. Remember when we looked at verse 5 and I noted that that was best translated in the middle of the verse there. I will now arise, will say the Lord that there's a future tense there that that the, the principle at work here is that God is calling His people to wait upon Him and to know that His great I will say is coming and He will give His people the desires in the depths of their hearts specifically to have victory over those in the world who malign them, who want to tear them up and keep them from peace. Implicit in that is a call then to wait upon the Lord. Then we turn the corner and what's David doing? He's having a hard time waiting on the Lord. He's challenged in his ability to practice what he has preached. And he gives us four how longs in these first two verses. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Is that that means are, are you never going to come? Am I never going to come to mind to you again? It's as if God has forgotten David. Will you remember me no more? Secondly, how long will you hide your face from me? This is directly connected to what he says in Psalm 11, verse 7. Do you remember four weeks ago, we concluded our study of Psalm 11 with that glorious truth that all who are righteous one day will see the face of God. They will behold His glorious countenance. And now David is wondering where that is. How long will you hide your face from me? It's as if he's saying, I long to see you face to face. Where is your face? Bring that face on. I need to see it. And it's not there. And then thirdly, how long must I wrestle or muddle through with my own contemplations and every day, literally the Hebrew reads, agonize in my heart. And how long will my enemy triumph over me? How long will I wrestle and and have to carry around this sense that those who hate me or winning, and I'm losing. So there's really in those four how longs the threefold presentation of David's misery. God seems to be gone. I am a mess in my soul. And by a confluence of those two things, those who are opposed to me are triumphing over me. Now, in all of the soul fatigue and the tiredness, We need to understand here that the main import 
of verses 1 and 2 is found in the statement of David's wrestling with his thoughts. This literally means, this is a difficult meaning to convey in English, but what the Hebrew really says and conveys there is, how much longer do I have to have laid plans inside of me? And I suggest to you that what David has here for us is a main ingredient for conviction over the fact that we cannot, as it were, get ahead of God. We cannot start an engineering and tinker with things to bring Him up to our speed. How long do I have to have laid plans in me? You've heard of the best laid plans of men. You've also heard it say, if you want to make God laugh, tell Him your plans. There may not have been any specific outworking, but there is at least in the heart of David that would have eventually led to an outworking. His scheming and analyzing and contemplating things so as to come up with plan B or plan C if Yahweh's plan A doesn't work out. And again, we see more of the, of the sin that's in his heart. You see, not only is he not following his own instruction in Psalm 12, impatiently waiting the day of his Lord, but he's going against his own instruction in Psalm 11 to those whom he revealed in verses 1b through 3 of Psalm 11 as counselors, though well-intentioned, who were telling him things that did not comprise a trustworthy option. You see, he's having trouble waiting, but in his difficulty waiting, he's, he's also beginning to do that very thing that he had identified as being wrong and of no benefit to him. And that's what we do. And in our weariness in well-doing, we come under conviction about this because, truth be told, what we're really feeling in our hearts and what we're really saying to ourselves is God might not come through. Much like Sarah in Genesis 16. Well, that child hasn't come. And since there's a proviso in marital law in our time, Abraham, why don't you have relations with the hen servant of mine, Hagar, and we'll expedite things. Well, we know where that wound up. Ishmael came and was a lifelong opponent to his relatives and thorn in the side of many. Don't we do that? Don't we attempt to change things as though we actually could to hasten what we've determined is good? And Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, they give you the freedom to be honest, but they also show us again our obligation to be honoring to our God in what we do. Don't mess things up. Just wait. Time isn't anything to Him. I remember in high school when I began to have an interest in broadcast journalism before I went to college and majored in that. My senior year in high school, I was invited by a friend of mine who knew a commercial producer to do the voiceover on a 30-second ad for a local dry cleaner. And that was really cool. Here I was on the radio, careers taking off. Hey, this is great. So much so that a friend of mine, I was a senior in high school at the time, said, we, we have another thing that we need to do an ad for. 
we would like to consider you doing the vo- voiceover on this. There was a, um, a non-alcoholic nightclub for teens called Nowhere. didn't last very long. But they wanted to do an ad on local radio, and the guy who was producing that knew the father of my classmate. They said, hold on, we're going to put your name up, and this will probably work out. Meanwhile, as I'm thinking about things, I'm being counseled by others in the industry saying things like, oh, Jared, you, you, you can't be shy about these kinds of things. I mean, you're way too timid. You've you got to go for it. You've got to pick up the phone. You've, you've got to make your way into stations. You've got to bug people about this, or you'll, you'll never get anywhere. So I said, okay. So I found out who was going to be heading... The project for that, the firm that was taking care of it, I got the man's name. I called him on the phone. His name was Hiram Jennings. I'll never forget this. And he had this sort of Upper East Side Manhattan dialect. He sounded sort of superior. And I said, may I speak to Mr. Jennings? He said, speaking. And I told him who I was and what the situation was. And he said, do you know who you're talking to? And I, yes, I'm talking to Mr. Hiram Jennings, and I went through everything again, and I told him about the tape I'd done before. He said, well, may I suggest that you make a duplicate and send it to me in the mail? And I took the address down, and the conversation ended rather abruptly. Long story short, I found out later on, several weeks later, when they didn't choose me, that I had jumped the gun. And my friend said to me, you know, if you'd just waited, if you hadn't taken matters into your own hands, it would have worked out for you. That kind of discontent, that kind of antsiness as we wait upon God is something that is revealed in Psalm 13, 1 and 2 to not be characteristic of spiritual maturity. Biblical trust brings with it a convention through both the tiredness, the weariness of life in this world as well as the things that we do in response to it to attempt to change the plans of God so often, those things remind us that what Samuel Rodegast said was true. His hand can turn my grief away. And patiently, I wait His day. This is the conviction that biblical trust brings. But secondly, we have with that the hunch that biblical trust maintains. There's a a visceral instinct about all this that begins to emerge in verse 3a. Notice how he's made these these bold and, and blunt statements in these how long questions. And then he turns around and says, Look on me and answer, O Lord my God, O Yahweh, who is my God. You see, David is revealing that he's coming under something of this conviction, I believe, and he he turns, and no sooner than he has identified that God is gone and no longer seems to want to have anything to do with him, he turns around and he addresses him. The absent God is now the addressee. He's agonizing over the God who has left him. And the next statement is one that indicates that he believes that he's still there. This is the hunch that biblical trust maintains. You feel like God is nowhere to be found, but where do you go? You go back to Him because you realize you don't have anywhere else to go. He keeps on pressing. 
You keep going back to the presence of the inescapable God. I don't know where you are. You've turned away from me. I I feel as though I'll never see your face. I'm out here calculating and scheming as opposed to trusting in the perfection of your sovereignty. I'm miserable. I'm losing. My enemies are winning. Look on me and answer me, oh my God. It's as if he's saying, but I'm still with you. I'm still yours. You don't have anywhere else to go. I was reading a story recently in The Power to Change, which is an online publication in which a woman named Christine Hoos tells of her having lost a son named Noah who was very young. She doesn't say how. She talks about the struggle that she's had. She said she walked in the woods and camped out in the wisdom literature of Job and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and even Lamentations and still hurt. Her philosopher husband found solace, she said, in philosophical arguments about the existence of God and the nature of God and the state of the world, all things she readily affirmed but did nothing to bolster her in her crisis of faith. She talks about things improving over time by God's grace, and she writes this, I trust in Jesus to pay for my wrongs and to save me from death, especially since my son's death. This hope is my foundation. I know that one day I will not only see Jesus, but my son again. I would rather he was with me, but since he is not, I am so glad that he is safe and loved. For this reason, I hold on to my faith. Not only that, but my faith in Jesus is about relationship. As I said, I've been angry with God. I will never be happy that my son is away from me. I miss him terribly. There is a hole in our family and my heart aches. But God knows how I feel. He lost his son too. And he has made it so clear to me that he loves me more than I can comprehend. This comfort did not quickly come or easily come. It came slowly in so many ways, through Bible reading, through prayer, even angry and despairing prayers, through nature and through others around me. God put His arms around me and helped my broken heart to heal. He was there all along. I just had to open up to Him. To live without faith seems to me a hopeless and comfortless and pointless existence. So I hold on even when I don't feel like it. This is how I have faith, not a feeling or an experience, but a decision. As Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And then she says this, I can't imagine life without Jesus. Holding on to faith has been a struggle, but to live without it is the unthinkable. Now that's a soul that maintains that hunch. Oh, I think God has done me wrong. I think He's afar off and can't be found. But that's not true. And the only thing more miserable than living in bad conditions is to live in bad conditions without the belief that God really is there. I remember what Ronald Reagan said In 1980, as a kid watching the Republican National Convention, he finished his nominating speech, and he wanted the crowd there in the convention hall in Detroit to bow their heads for a moment of silent prayer. And before he did that, he said, I'm afraid to do this, but I'm more afraid not to. That's that's the instinct 
of saving faith. You may think that your faith is dead, but that's overtaken by the mercy of God with an overwhelming urge that you better not be caught dead without it. Then you really have problems. This is the hunch that biblical trust maintains. Now thirdly, moving to verses 3b and verse 4, we find the mindfulness that biblical trust possesses. The mindfulness or the thoughtfulness, we could say, the engagement of the mind that biblical trust possesses or consists of. Here, it's as if David, having turned around, begins to give you some meat to hang on the bones that he presented you with in Psalm 12, 1a and verse 3a. Remember three weeks ago, we talked about his prayer that was quick and powerful, help, Lord, and that word help, Uh, That verb came from the same root word as Yeshua, Savior, Lord. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. He's saying, Savior, my God, will you pull up by the root everything that is opposed to me? And I told, I reminded us how it is that we have the freedom to do that. We have the freedom to pray what the Puritans called ejaculatory prayers. You don't have time necessarily to organize it. Boom! You shoot it up. It comes straight from the heart. Well, now what David is doing, it's as if he's tempering that with the necessity of thoughtfulness in prayer. It's okay to have emotions, but he's reminding us here that that needs to be tempered with some reason. We should not only cry out from the heart God gives us, We should cry out with the mind God gives us. We can cry out in quick fashion, but there needs to be the presence of a rationale. This is something that seems to be honoring to the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 3b, Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. That's a great line. You know, we find those words in 1 Samuel 14.29. You'll remember when... Saul had put a moratorium on the consumption of any food before they had gone in to get vengeance against the Philistines, and Jonathan sneaked a little bit of the honey. You remember that? Perhaps he had low blood sugar and he just needed something to pick him up a bit. He says in verse 29 of 1 Samuel 14, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little bit of that honey? That's a phrase that is indicative of coming to life again. That's what David says. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. But it's not just physical as it was with Jonathan. There's a spiritual dimension to this. He's saying, bring me back to the benefits of all of your works that go into and surround and comprise the reality of my being a regenerated living man in your presence. Some of you have read through Arthur Bennett's Valley of Vision prayers. There's a beautiful line in there that captures this. The writer is talking about the grace of God shown to him. And in one place it says, Then did the dead heart begin to beat. And then did the darkened eyes glimmer with light. 
He's being brought back to that place of the certainty that He is God. And, and He's alive. And he's functioning in life before God in a way that's pleasing to Him, that's loaded with trust, that's rife with faith, and is not being sidelined by questioning God and doubting His goodness. And you see how, by the grace of God, David comes out of this hole rather quickly. Not only does he ask that, but look at verse 4. Specifically, he wants his enemies not to be able to say that they've overcome him. He does not want his foes to have joy when he stumbles. In the Hebrew, these literally read with the term lest. Lest mine enemies say I have overcome him. Lest my foes or those who oppose me would have joy when I stumble. So you see, there are specifics to the prayer. What are your lests that you bring to the Lord? You cry out to Him, but are, are you thinking through as you're waiting the specifics of what it is you need for His glory and to do His bidding and to be faithful to Him and to be found in obedience? To him. Dr. Ralph Davis, in his excellent commentary on Psalms 20 or 12 through 24, slogging along in the paths of righteousness, he says this of David's requests in verses 3 and 4. There is a sense in which prayer should be so terribly logical and rational. Do you pray that way? Do you press reasons upon God as to why He should answer your plea? Can you make an argument for the petition that you bring? In verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 12, there is especially the feeling. In verses 3 and 4, the thinking. In the former, there is emotion. In the latter, there is reasoning. In verses 1 and 2, the affections are laid bare. In verses 3 and 4, the arguments are pressed. It's not an either-or, but it's a both-and. Sometimes in our Christian or church culture, he continues, we get pushed one way or the other. Some urging us, if we think of the extremes, to swing and sway to the beat and bounce of roop ti do songs of praise. And others to furrow our brows and get into brain cell Christianity. But this psalm implies that especially in prayer you must hold both emotion and reason together. In a true knowledge of God they combine. At the throne of grace, tears fall from your eyes. And arguments come from your lips. That's the, the way out. That's the means of grace for us as we think back toward our God and His sufficiency, this is indeed the mindfulness that biblical trust possesses. It thinks. It transfers knowledge from the head into the heart in the hour of need. This is why it's so important for us to study, to know God's Word, to devour it, to lay it up in our hearts, as the Catechism says, and practice it in our lives, so that when tragedy does strike, we are not running on an empty tank. That's a sick feeling if you've been there. 
But it's much easier when those trials come along when you're full and you can comfort yourself by the truth that God has been pleased to press down deeply into your hearts. Well, finally and fourthly, I need us to see the reassurance that biblical trust knows in the final two verses, the reassurance that biblical trust knows. But I trust. A great statement. Again, turning the other way completely. I trust in your unfailing love. And his heart rejoices in the salvation of Yahweh. That is, he has joy in the salvation that God has brought that is all of God. This is exactly what he cries in Psalm 51.12 when he's there in the misery of struggling with the memory of his sin, of adultery, and of murder. He says, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, your salvation. Give me back the joy of it. Enable me to rejoice in that and find contentment in my soul. He continues to sing to the Lord. After all, this is a song, and he reminds us that he is still singing, and namely, he is singing along with the theme of God's unfailing love. He's singing of God's goodness to him. He sings, why? Because God has been good to me. Do we see God as good, irrespective of what we're dealing with or suffering through? So oftentimes, I don't. We like to talk about how God is good, but we often say it right after we received something we wanted or thought we deserved. And that's good. We should do that. But my prayer for my friend Jim Freeman in Indiana this morning is that he is, by God's grace, his usual godly self and in the face of this life-threatening disease, is still declaring the goodness of God. Now, I want you to see two things here. We have the goodness of God. We have the unfailing love of God. And the word that we translate unfailing love there is the hesed. We finally run into it. You've heard me on two previous occasions in our study of the Psalms speak of the chesed, that is, the characterization of the in response to the covenant love of God. This is what David bemoans as having gone out or left in Psalm uh, 12, verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly, that is, those who are covenantally faithful, are no more. They've gone in among the faithless and they've disappeared. They've blended in so well with the faith, faithless they can't see them. They've vanished. Well, now he's talking about that unfailing love to which the faithful by grace respond. The chesed love of God. And this is God's ultimate and undying commitment to His people. His consistent, ever-present, never-absent, unconditional, abiding love that in a word we call mercy. Anytime you've come to the end of yourself and you cry out to Him with everything you've got and you acknowledge, Lord, unless you intervene, unless you take care of this, I'm without hope. My hope is in you and in you alone. That's a hesed acknowledgement. That's a statement for Him to again show His unfailing love. His mercy. 
Then there's the goodness of God that refers to his liberality in favor toward his people. Now, isn't it interesting that he concludes this psalm here with hesed and goodness or mercy and goodness? And you fast forward 10 psalms to that most well-known and beloved of the psalms, Psalm 23. And in the last verse, what does he say, albeit in reverse order? Surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We have to look ahead with that Psalm 23, 6 backdrop to rightly understand that the king is directing our attention to precisely that here, that these two things, the mercy and the goodness of God, they follow us. Now this is important when we're in the midst of struggles thinking that God has abandoned us. If you think he's left, what do you need? You need to be told he hasn't left. Not only so, you need to be told he's following you. He's on your bumper as you drive through life. Not only has he not gone anywhere, but he's all up into the affairs of your life. You might think of it this way. Former presidents get secret service protection, and they're followed by agents. If George W. Bush and Mrs. Bush want to go down to Sam's Club and walk around and greet people, they're free to do that, and they have a detail that follows them, but not a sitting president. What happens? There are background checks of every known person they're going to come in contact with. If a sitting president is going to stop somewhere, as President Obama loved to do, what they call the the off-the-record, just show up somewhere, And his team had to come and speak to every person sitting in the restaurant or the library and say, now, one of our men will be by to to zap you in a little while, and you can stay if you want. And if you want to leave, you have to use this door. All these details. Why? To keep the President of the United States safe. Now, that's a picture of the divine following. He not only hasn't left you, he's with you. He's not only behind you, he's ahead of you. He has it all. That's his presence with you. That's that's what the goodness of God means in verse 6b, for he has been good to me. That literally reads, his care for me has been comprehensive. It's, It's complete. Mercy, unconditionality, liberality of goodness. About a year ago, I asked you to pray for one of my mentors, a ruling elder for many years, the father of my closest friend from high school and college, Mr. John Sherrod, who had entered into congestive heart failure. He went home to be with the Lord in March. Regrettably, I was not able to attend the service. But I went online to read the obituary in his local newspaper, and it was so beautifully written, and it was so honoring to the Lord. But I think the line in it that touched my heart the most was in that section where they list all of those who survived the deceased. And they mentioned his 13 grandchildren. And whoever wrote this obituary said this, He is survived by 13 grandchildren who knew nothing but being loved unconditionally 
and lavishly when in the presence of their granddad. That's, that's what we have in the presence of our God. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's pursuing you. He's ahead of you. He's over and around you and behind you and everywhere. And His love is unconditional. And it's lavish. It's beyond calculation or categorization. Oh, could we have any more kind and gracious reminder as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to meet our host, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very procession in His being from the Father as the One who is the perfection and the embodiment of His words in Deuteronomy 31.16 of the Lord when He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, as we read again in Hebrews 13.5. Is He not the very existence of that glorious reality of which we read in Joshua 1.9 that our God is with us wherever we go? And were not the last words of this Jesus before He ascended, of which we read in Matthew 28.20, that, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. We need to be reminded as we come to His table that He meets us in the bread and the cup. And He reminds us that He is following us. All of our days. That as we feed upon Him, we're reminded again that we're loved unconditionally and lavishly when in the presence of our great Savior, God, and King, like David, is without sin, who is perfect. And Lord, to us again. Pull ourselves up but so that we can testify to the fact that God has come into rescued us. And whatever we face with that truth, we can be sure that we are His and that He is with us. Perhaps it's best summed up by the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 3.19. And this is how we know that we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. May we pray. Father, Your saints, their watch are keeping. And indeed, the cry does go up, how long? We ask that as we come to Your table, You would remind us that soon, the night of weeping will be the morn of song. And we ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.